So our scripture reading this morning is from Exodus 24 through 6. And before I read, Wilma is going to read that portion of scripture in Dutch. So Exodus 20, vers 4 tot 6. Gij zult u geen gesneden beeld maken, nog enige gestalte van wat boven in de hemel, nog van wat beneden op de aarde, nog van wat in de wateren onder de aarde is. Gij zult u voor die niet buigen, nog niet dienen, want ik, de Heer, uw God, ben een jaloers God, die de ondergerechtigheid van de vaderen bezoekt aan de kinderen, aan het derde en vierde geslacht van hen die mij haten, en die barmhartigheid doen aan Duizenden van hen die mijn lief hebben en mijn geboden onderhouden. En Exodus 24 through 6 says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Daryl and Wilma. Good morning, church. Those of you I haven't met, I'm Pastor Adam. It's a blessing to be with you this morning and opening God's Word together as we carry on in our our series. Well, this past week, I was rudely awoken by a five-year-old poking my face. And she had an important question for me, and that question was, Dad, what are we doing today? And uh, this question is one that my five-year-old asks me all of the time. What are we doing today? What are we doing today? What are we doing today? And it drives me a little bit crazy. She asked me this morning as I was leaving the house uh, to come here. And she's taught her younger sister this question as well. Um, her younger sister's quite funny because I don't think she understands the concept of a day. And so we'll be like getting ready for bed at night and putting on her pajamas. She looks at me, Dad, what are we doing today? I'm like, We're going to bed, Hallie. We're going to bed. <laughs> the day is done. And I I don't blame them for asking this question. They want to know what's happening. They want to know who they're going to see, what they're going to do, who they're going to be playing with, and how much time is going to pass between each of these things. And they rightly look at their parents, mom and dad, who are responsible for ordering their day-to-day lives to supply to them the information that they require. You know, this question is a lot like the one, you know, are we there yet? These types of things. Kids looking to their parents or grandparents for information. Maybe you remember asking this question of of your own parents as you were growing up. Maybe you're a parent yourself and you hear these questions being asked. But I was reflecting on how this isn't a question that I have grown out of. Now, I'm not calling my own mother at at 6 a.m. in the morning to ask her what we're doing today. That would be highly inappropriate. But I find myself not so much saying, what are we doing today? But asking the question, what's going to happen today? What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen next week, next month, or in the years that are coming down the road for me? 
We live in a day and age where we've, we've gone through a global pandemic. Things like my health no longer seem like they're at all in my control. I've watched the economy fluctuate and inflation go crazy and suddenly the, the bit of money I have in the bank account, I'm left wondering, is this actually going to be enough? We hear about wars and rumors of wars and watch one taking place in Europe that's destroying a country and displacing its people. And our own safety and security even comes into question. Closer to home, when I look at my own life, I'm, I'm left looking at my own sense of purpose, my own sense of identity and belonging. And, and this question, what's going to happen today, reverberates in my mind. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen in the years down the road? I look at my little children and my young family, and it's this question of, what's going to happen to them? Are they going to be okay? Many of you this morning, perhaps sitting here with that question ringing in your own minds, am I going to be okay? Are we going to be okay? Perhaps in the midst of a situation where things feel uncontrollable, And you just wish you could reach out and control it and and make it good again. And what we do with that question is very important. Where do we take those questions? Where do we run with them? What do we do when we feel like things are out of control? We're in a series that we are calling The Way. And we believe that God in his love he creates us. He knows how we're to get the best and, and live the best life. He knows how we're going to get the, be- the most out of life without blowing life. And in his love, he's not only created us with a purpose, but he's given us instructions of how to live. And he's invited us to follow him. So as we follow him, we rightly ask the question, what, what is the way? How do we walk in the way of Jesus? How do we respond to the invitation to follow him and walk faithfully with him? So we're looking at the Ten Commandments as a bit of a springboard to explore the many ways of the way of Jesus. Last week, we opened up our Bibles in Exodus 20 and started with the first commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me. We explored how that commandment is a call to us to walk the way of Jesus by having a heart that is undivided and that our worship and our allegiance goes to God alone. This morning, we're going to explore this second commandment, which is building upon the first. And where the first called for an undivided heart of allegiance and worship, the second commandment is calling us to a way of wholehearted trust in God's character and provision. You see, this question of what's going to happen today is not a unique question when we look at human history. People have asked this question all the time. People have lived in insecurity for generations and generations and generations. And when we look at the people of Israel at this moment in in time, when they received the Ten Commandments, I look at them and I can't help but wonder, and I think there's evidence to this point, that they too were wrestling with this question. What is going to happen today? What is going to happen tomorrow? And God, seeing us as people asking this question, seeing Israel asking this question, gives this second command. He says, do not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. Now there's two ways to explore this commandment. We're going to unpack both of them and see how this commandment invites us to a heart 
of trusting God's character and provision. So the first way to understand this is to not make an idol to honor and revere in place of the Lord. Do not make an idol to honor or revere in the place of the Lord. Now this is sometimes hard for us to wrap our minds around. You know, walking around Edmonton, we don't see a bunch of temples set up on every corner. People aren't offering sacrifices of grain or animals to these deities or these types of things. So how do we understand this? Well, in Egypt and in the ancient Near East, in Israel's day, it was a polytheistic people. Man, they're having a lot of fun upstairs. I'm sorry, we're not having that much fun. I'll try, I'll try. Let's have more fun. We could be more excited. We can... Sorry. Um, That's wonderfully distracting. I love our children. We bless them. Um, A polytheistic people believed that there were many different gods that were governing how the world worked, how things happened. Uh, We see this in, uh, in the Old Testament looking at the worship of Baal. You've probably read about this god Baal in the Old Testament. And Baal was the god of storms and the bringer of rain. He was recognized as the god that sustained the fertility of crops, animals, and people. And so if you were living in the ancient Near East and you were facing this feeling of what's going to happen today, what's going to happen tomorrow with my crops, what's going to happen today, what's going to happen tomorrow with my livestock, Uh, what about my own family, Are, are we going to be a fruitful and abundant family? If you were wrestling with those questions, you would gather up a sacrifice, you would go and you'd worship Baal, and you'd make offerings to Baal as a way for you to try to control this uncontrollable sacrifice. If your crops went well and your, your animals did well, your family's doing well, there's a sense of, okay, I worshipped Baal properly and now he is blessing me, my livestock, my crops, and my family. And so idol worship in the ancient Near East was highly transactional. It was people looking at their lives, looking at the circumstances they found themselves in, and then going to idols, appealing to these idols as a way to make everything okay in their lives. This is so good. I love this. What's really interesting when we look in Exodus is right after the Ten Commandments are given, um, we have this really sad story of Israel making an idol. And in Exodus chapter 32, uh, we read this story. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. And for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing. Bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made, into, made it into an idol and cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Do you see what's happening here? The people of Israel have been delivered from Egypt. They came up out of Egypt by the power of God. And God brings them into the wilderness. In the wilderness, they're watching Moses, their leader, go up a mountain. He's interacting with the Lord. But Moses is taking longer than he should. The people are in the wilderness, the middle of nowhere. They have not yet arrived at the promised land. And they're left there wondering, where's Moses? Are we going to be okay? Where did the God go that led us out of Egypt? What happened to him? So what do they do in the midst of their insecurity? 
What do they do when they're feeling out of control? They make an idol. The clue for us in this is the line, come make us gods who will go before us. Why? Because we're not sure what happened to the other god who was going before us. So we need something else. What we were doing doesn't seem to be working anymore, so I need something else. So out of this longing for control, out of this longing to restore a sense that things are going to be okay, Israel makes an idol. Friends, the Lord gives this second commandment as a call to exclusive trust in his character and to safeguard his people from the illusion that false gods will actually bring them abundant life. Could a calf that they fashioned in the wilderness out of silver and gold lying around, could it actually bring them deliverance? No. Friends, in the way that Israel was longing for continued deliverance, and the way that they were longing for salvation to continue to be worked out for them, that God would lead them out of the wilderness into the promised land, that longing that things will be okay, that longing for continued deliverance, we all have that. We have that in ourselves as well. So while I doubt that many of us are making physical images or idols, we are all tempted to place our ultimate trust in things other than God in an attempt to control our outcomes. We long for this continued deliverance. Our hearts ache for a deep sense that things will be okay, and we turn to all sorts of other things to experience that okayness. We look to things other than God to experience salvation and deliverance. Perhaps it's money, sexual experiences, perhaps it's power, a deep sense of identity, a securing of our image, maintaining a youthful glow as long as we can. Perhaps it's seeking comforts in entertainment or the refrigerator. Perhaps it's ideologies or philosophies, ways of seeing the world and hoping that if we can just advance a certain agenda, then things will be okay. Maybe it's our possessions. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul calls greed idolatry, looking to lesser things as a means to feel okay, placing our trust in things other than God. Friends, the second commandment calls us to cast these down and place our trust in our true deliverer, the one who could do what an idol could never do. So that's one way to understand the second commandment. The second way is to understand it is do not make an image of the Lord. Do not make an image of Yahweh. When he's calling them not to make an image of himself, He's saying, do not confuse me among all these other idols. I am not like Baal. I am not like the Egyptian gods that you watched your your slave drivers worship. I am way higher than that. I am above these. Don't confuse me with them. In addition to that, when he said, don't make an idol of me, he's saying, don't attach me to an image. Idol worship, they believed that the fate of the idol was attached to the fate of the deity. So if something bad happened to an idol, something bad was happening to the deity that it represented. God's saying, don't attach me to an image. 
You cannot control me. And whatever you try to do to understand me, however you want to craft me in this way, it's going to be a reduction of who I really am. Friends, to make an idol of God is to reduce him to something that we think we can control. We are not to do that. Patrick Miller says that the Lord speaks to the people out of the fire. It's a powerful image, something bright and visible, capable of being seen, but it is also dangerous and untouchable. A reality, that it, it is, a reality that is not subject to being made or handled in any way. Nor is it in the form of any likeness. To make an image is indeed an effort to domesticate God. To tame the fire and control it. Making an image of God is like playing with fire. It is dangerous and one is sure to get burned. Oh, don't make an idol of me. The Lord gives this second command to protect his people from the consequences of attempting to control him. Because to create an idol or an image of the Lord that does not accurately represent him brings Israel into a relationship with something other than him, which keeps them from experiencing his goodness. Because they're no longer worshiping the Lord himself, but rather their perception or idea of him. But who he is, is truly better. Well, similar to the first aspect of understanding this commandment, I don't think any of you today were planning to go home and create an image of God. Um, We don't struggle with that part of this commandment, maybe in the way that the, the original audience would have struggled. So not creating a physical image of the Lord is easy enough for us to follow. However, it is very easy to engage in functional idolatry or conceptual idolatry. In Jesus' day, the religious leaders did this. Jesus comes among them, God in flesh. The religious leaders watch Jesus heal the sick, proclaim the kingdom of God, cast out demons. But the religious leaders had such, such an idea of who God was That when Jesus didn't line up to that idea, they said, no, this man has a demon. This man isn't God. There's no way that this is the Messiah. The Messiah would never do that. God would never do that. They couldn't be more wrong. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they had such an idea of who God was that they failed to recognize God in their midst in the person of Jesus. They had set up a functional idol in their heads of who the Lord is. And they were so set on their understanding of him that they missed him in the person of Christ. It terrifies me to think if Jesus was standing in front of me today, would I recognize him for who he is or would I call him a devil? So while we may not be setting up physical images of God, we are tempted to engage in this conceptual idolatry of him, this functional idolatry. We do this when we craft an idea of God in our minds that is inconsistent with who he actually is. But friends, the truth of God exists outside of us. And so much of what we think about him or feel about him, what we might hear about God on the street or read about in a book or watch it and learn about from a television show, it might just be completely and totally wrong. 
But when that wrong idea or image of God is what we're taking in, it affects how we relate to him and how we live in the world. There's no shortage of examples of the ways that a misunderstanding of God leads to terrible and damaging results. Even this morning, as we think this weekend on um, the day of National Truth and Reconciliation, the history of the church is in that area of history within Canada is a reflection of a misunderstanding and misrepresentation of God and his character and who he actually is. There's no shortage of doctrine and teaching that elevates certain aspects of God while ignoring others, leading to terrible results. We think about teachings like universalism that says, well, all paths lead to God. You don't really need allegiance to Jesus. It's all grace at the end of time. He'll just welcome you in no matter what you think or believe. That completely ignores much of the New Testament's teaching and Jesus' proclamation that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Teachings like the prosperity gospel, which call us to just, if you just give a little bit more money, God will bless you a little bit more. That the more that you give, the more God will bless. And if he's not blessing you enough, just give him more. It's exactly like ball worship, an attempt to control God. Other teachings where there's an overemphasis on grace, where it doesn't really matter how I live, it doesn't matter what I do with my, my body or how I act. It's all grace. God's good with all of it. He'll forgive everything. That slippery grace, inconsistent with Jesus' invitation to come and follow him, to live with wholehearted allegiance to him. Friends, all these types of teachings are, are reflective of an idolatry that takes place in our minds where we elevate our concept of God above who God actually is. But friends, the gospel, the good news, is that God hasn't abandoned or left us to figure out who he is on our own, but he has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus and in the word of God. If we want to know who God is, we look at Jesus. If we want to understand who God is, we study the scriptures in the context of community and we do all of it in humility and we don't abuse the word of God as a way to do whatever we want in the world. We don't manipulate scripture in such a way to say, I'm actually justified to live however I want. Jesus invites us to his way of life. We surrender ourselves to that way of life. We say, Jesus, I I don't have the big picture. I don't understand all these things. Help me to live and walk with you humbly. Help me to know you for who you are. Help me not to confuse you with an idea I have in my head of who you are. And help me not to use my desires and my impulses as a way to manipulate who you are in order to live however I want apart from you. We need to be careful And in God's love, he wants to journey with us in us understanding more and more who he is. I love in John 14 when Jesus does make that declaration that I am the way, the truth, and the life. You ever think about this, how strange it is, this idea of a man saying, I am the truth? What's the truth? How do we know the truth? How do we live in truth? Jesus says, I am the truth. Which calls us to the reality of like, I I think the truth is so much bigger than you or I could ever really fathom. Jesus is inviting us into relationship. You want to know the truth? Do you come to a textbook called The Truth? (laughs) 
No, you come to a person named Jesus Christ. And by the grace of his Holy Spirit, he leads us into truth. He leads us into deeper healing. He leads us into knowing who he is and experiencing the life that he made us for. Friends, this issue of idolatry is a really big one. And God takes it seriously. And it's interesting that the second commandment has this attached declaration of God's character that actually makes us a little bit uncomfortable. And I think it reveals to us that God is passionate about our wholehearted trust in his character and provision. So he goes on to say, you shall not bow down to these idols or worship them. Why? For I, the Lord, your God, am jealous. I'm punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Whoa. God is passionate about this issue of idolatry. He wants us to know him for who he is. This word jealousy could rightly also be translated into the English as zeal. It's an expression of his passion. It comes up out of the context of Israel's relationship with God. One chapter earlier in Exodus 19, we have the people of Israel declaring to God that they will be faithful. They will do what God has called them to do. They enter into relationship, much in the way that you and I enter into relationship with Jesus when we say, yes, you are my Lord and my Savior, I will follow you. Now, because we have committed to him, because we are in relationship with him, God is rightly jealous when we abandon him and go to lesser gods and lesser things in order to feel okay, in order to control our circumstances, in order to live life however we want apart from him. He's rightly jealous. Why? Because he loves you. And in the same way that uh, a man and a woman come before a congregation and God and they give vows to one another in the presence of witnesses, committing themselves to, to faithful love for one another, either one of the people in that relationship is rightly jealous when the other person goes to another lover. That love is rightly aroused. That is the type of love we are reading about here. God's heart broken when we go to lesser things because he loves us. And in addition to this, when we think about God's punishment, it's like, whoa, 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 God, punishment? Come on, I thought it's all grace. But no, God wants to bring correction as we learn to trust him because we won't always get it right. And as a loving parent disciplines their child for stepping outside the bounds of what is good and safe, So too, Scripture teaches us that God disciplines His children to bring us back into that relationship, to bring us back to walking the way that He has for us, that we might experience the abundance that He has made us for. It's all about love. And He's passionate about us living for Him, not abandoning Him for some other idol and not abandoning Him For some idea of him that's actually inconsistent with who he is. When we look at the generations thing, it it, it speaks even more to God's love. We might get hung up on this idea of of generational sin. There's lots that could be said uh, about this topic. 
Um, I think what we need to keep in mind here um, is letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Um, yeah, again, we could spend a lot of time on this stuff. Um, but when God's talking about the, the consequences of sin being experienced on generations, I think we rightly understand that horizontally. Um, in the ancient Near East, a household oftentimes housed three to four generations. So if someone in that household goes and sins, the consequences of that sin is experienced in the context of the household. The idea of generations experiencing punishment for other sin, well, in Deuteronomy uh, 24 and in Ezekiel 18, it, both, it brings correction to those ideas where, where there's an emphasis on the fact that individuals are the ones who bear the punishment for their sins. Um, and and so, so there's correction that's brought to, to that understanding of this passage. But the emphasis in this text is grace and love. Because where we see and read about the third and fourth generation and go, whoa, that's intense. We need to understand that the context of that is on those who hate the Lord. He punishes the sins on the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. Those who reject him. Those who turn their back on him. But then this is contrast to showing love to a thousand generations on those who love me and keep my commandments. God wants to pour out blessing and love on thousands of generations. Just need to trust him and walk in his way. So friends, the second commandment reveals to us that we walk the way of wholehearted trust and surrender control and commit ourselves to knowing him for who he is. So how do we walk in obedience to this second commandment? How do we guard ourselves from idolatry? Well, something that needs to be said throughout this series is that um, when we look at the Ten Commandments, this isn't about a list that we need to go through and check off to feel better about ourselves. It's not about us saying, I just need to be more righteous. I just need to muster up something within myself so I can be, be a better person. But one of the principles around the Ten Commandments is that the lawgiver... The one who's given us this Ten Commandments is the one who empowers us to be obedient. Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit who empowers us to walk with him, who empowers us to be faithful. So as we talk about applying any of these commandments, um, we need to remember the context that we do so in the power of the Holy Spirit. So what about this second commandment? Um, So yes, we walk in this way of wholehearted trust As we surrender control and commit ourselves to knowing him for who he is. Um, So the first aspect here is this idea of surrendering control to God. And noticing the pull to control by trusting in things other than God. This is bringing the Lord our concerns. It's bringing our hearts to him. It's choosing to trust him in our insecurities and our struggles, our doubts. When we have this ache welling up in us, this wondering, am I going to be okay? Is my family going to be okay? What's the future going to hold? Am I ever going to feel better again? These types of longings, what do you do with them? Where do you take them? How do you deal with them? Are you running to God or are you running to something else? Faithfulness to the second commandment calls for us to be a people who 
engage in prayerful waiting. It's not easy to wait. We're in a culture that wants instant results. Reflective in so many things. I think about hearing reports of students using chat GTP to write papers for them. (laughs) They don't want to take the time to write a paper. And so they get technology to do it for them. We can order food on our phones and it shows up 20 minutes later or a product off Amazon and the next day it's sitting on our porch. We do not like to wait. So what happens when we bring our insecurities and our brokenness to a God who loves us and our circumstances don't change instantly? (laughs) I think for many of us in our faith, we think, well, prayer didn't work. God didn't work. And then we feel justified going to something else. But friends, God is not an Amazon driver. He's not chat GTP. God is not one who's just going to answer your prayers the second that you pray them. He wants you to be present to him. He's already present to you. Do you realize that? (laughs) He's with you. No matter the situation or circumstance you find yourselves in, the, the challenge for us is how do we be more present to him? So we need to bring these things to him and wait And say, God, this is really hard. We need to wait for him. Because friends, we cannot live into the joy, the peace, or the comfort that God has for us in a state of hurry. We just can't. The depths of your heart that God wants to satisfy, they aren't going to be satisfied in a state of hurry. We have to wait on him. The second way we live out this commandment is to approach God with humility and a sincere desire to know him more. Uh, This fall, we've been highlighting the practice of reading scripture. I hope you've been engaging with us in that. We've been reading through the gospel of Mark very slowly as a church, trying to help us learn that reading the Bible isn't just checking off um, a reading plan day after day, but it's, it's sitting with Jesus and encountering him in his word. And I believe he does it. And this fall, as we are doing that, I encourage you, as we read the Bible slowly, ask the question, who is God? How is God revealing himself to me in his word? Allow it to challenge things that you already think about him, these, these, these things that maybe we just have always assumed to be true. Allow those things to be challenged as we read parts of scripture that confront us. You know, Exodus chapter 20, this whole section about God's jealousy and punishment. It's like, whoa, God, like what? But God wants to reveal himself to us as much in that text as he does in a text like there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the whole of scripture teaches us and reveals us more of who God is, but we need to sit with it in humility and a desire to know him more. There's a song that um, I've listened to many, many times over the last few years that I absolutely love by Will Reagan. And the lyrics are like this. When the way is unclear and the answer's elusive, he is different by far than our broken conclusions. You are not the God my pain has conceived. You are deeper and stronger than my eyes can see. Help me let you go. Help me give up control of the God I have made you when my fear 
has contained you. Oh, let that be our prayer. As we come to God's word, as we come to know him more, allow God to speak into our longing for things to be okay with powerful words that he reveals to us that he is greater and more than we could ever imagine, no matter the difficulty that we find ourselves in. And one more note on this I just want to say is that we need to discern in community. As we're seeking to know who God is, as we're wrestling with with the text, as we're struggling with our own situations and wondering where God is and, and how he's at work and all these things, we want to be a church here at TCC where no matter what you're going through, no matter your questions, your doubts, whatever season you find yourself in, that there are people who want to walk with you through that. That when you're wrestling in and out of season, that there are people who want to come alongside you to help you to see how is God at work? What is he doing? How is he working when he seems to be far off? Let us discern together in these things. Well, friends, I think it's so appropriate this morning that we go uh, to the table to remember Jesus. Because as God has called us not to make an idol of himself, he has indeed given himself to us in the person of Jesus. He's revealed himself to us. We don't need idols He has given himself to us in Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Jesus is the one who makes the Father known. And this morning we're going to take communion. In doing so, we turn our attention to Jesus. We remember what Jesus has done. And we choose to trust in what he has done. I'm going to invite the worship team uh, to come up as we transition to taking communion. Um, Just a couple of notes for us as we do that. Um, We invite you to come forward to receive the elements. Um, Please exit. You'll exit out your aisle on the right-hand side. No matter what section you're in, head out on the right. You can come down and collect the elements and then go back up and re-enter your rows um, from that left side. Um, And those of you at the back, please choose the shorter of the two lines as you're approaching, just as we can uh, move through as quickly as we can. But friends, as we take communion together this morning, um, what we'll have you do is grab the elements and and just head back to your seats and hold on to those and we will take communion together. But as you sit and wait, um, we'll have the music playing. We invite you to to join in um, on that as well. Just bring God those questions. What's going to happen today? What's going to happen tomorrow? That longing that we have in us to feel okay. Just encourage you as we take communion together, bring that before the Lord. And as you reflect on what Christ has done for you, the price that he paid on the cross. Choose to trust that what he has done is enough. And in the way that he has demonstrated his love and his provision and his care for you on the cross, he is going to continue 
to demonstrate his love and his care and his provision for you, no matter the situation or the circumstance you find yourself in this morning. So as we take communion this morning, we take it in faith, remembering what he has done and proclaiming what he will do and continue to do. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for a commandment that safeguards us from the illusion that lesser things can somehow satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. Be that created things or be that a false idea of who you are. So Lord, as we come this morning to the table to remember who you are and what you've done, Lord, may we do so while casting down idols, while declaring to you our trust, our allegiance. Thank you for your presence with us in this place. So yes, Lord, we just invite your Holy Spirit just to minister to us in this time as we cast down our idols. And as we look into the face of Jesus, meet us in that place, we pray. Amen.